Okay, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. We'll look at verses 1 through 7 this morning, and the text is printed in the bulletin also. Uh, we are getting into a relatively straightforward section of the book of Revelation with uh, what are in chapters 2 and 3, get little mini letters, mini letters written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, um, this modern-day Turkey. <clears throat> so the whole book, again, uh, just overall, it's a pastoral letter. It's written to, to these seven churches as sort of representative churches of the whole church um, geographically speaking, and, uh, and throughout time, right? So it's a pastoral letter written to them as representative churches. But here, in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus addresses each of these seven congregations individually, and in language that is much more straightforward than other parts of the book. Uh, there are still some symbols, there's still some patterns, lots of patterns that take place in these uh, little mini letters, lots of connections to be explained here. There's still some puzzles to be solved, right, in this section, even though it's super straightforward, uh, relatively speaking, compared to the rest of Revelation. But, but basically, this part of the book, these short messages or uh, memos, imagining Jesus saying to John, take a memo, take a memo, write, write this to these. Uh, it, <clears throat> they really help us to understand where Jesus is going with the whole thing, because this is sort of the clear part of Revelation. We can get from it an idea of what is being said throughout the rest of the book. So, um, Jesus doesn't address every conceivable problem that a church might face in these seven letters. But what he does address will help us to know how to interpret Revelation and apply Revelation. So we'll be in this section for the next seven weeks. We get a week per letter. Uh, before we read the first of these letters, which is written to the, the angel of the church in Ephesus, um, let me suggest one thing that I think will really help you uh, to hear this when we read it. Jesus tells John to write this to the angel of the church, to the, uh, the word also is translated messenger, to the messenger of the church. And all of what he writes here is in the second person singular. It's not, it's not I know y'all's works, you congregation, all of you in Ephesus. It's, I know your works, thy works, you messenger. And so I'll explain this a little more in a few minutes, but for now... Uh, I think it's best if we hear it as if Jesus is actually addressing the pastor of the church. So, um, hear it that way. Maybe it'll make more sense as we read it. So, uh, let me pray, then we'll read the, the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we're not as thankful as we could be or should be. But we do thank you because it's uh, changed the world and it's changed our lives and your word has called us here together now. And we want to hear from you, and we want to be shaped by your word. So we pray for your spirit's help to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> to the angel, or to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. 
But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 2,000 years ago, Ephesus was a really important city, probably the most significant city in the region in terms of uh, politics. It was a capital city of uh, what we call Asia Minor. Uh, It was economically, strategically positioned as a port city. It was very important. Uh, Religiously, it was important. It had the Temple of Artemis, which is a big deal. It had a couple of imperial cult temples that are temples that are uh, used in sort of the worship of the Roman Empire and the emperor in particular. So they had the cult, the, the Temple of the Divine Julius, Caesar. But it wasn't just important in all these worldly terms. It was uh, significant in a lot of worldly ways. But not just those, those ways. There was a church. There was a church in Ephesus that gets a lot of airtime in the New Testament. Paul, he spent two years there, which is a significant amount of time in, in his uh, overall missionary life, missionary journeys, journeys that he was on. He spent two years there as a missionary church planner, and his parting from the Ephesian elders uh, was important enough to him and Uh, and to us, to the church, that it was recorded in Acts chapter 20. Some time later, he wrote the wonderful letter to the church in Ephesus. It's outlining the work of Christ in establishing the church as the new temple. And then uh, Paul had appointed Timothy as the pastor there after him and wrote two letters to Timothy. Uh, As he neared the end of his life, Paul wrote these letters to Timothy to help him in his ministry at Ephesus, help him as the pastor at Ephesus. And now we have this letter from Jesus to the the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus. It's the first and most prominent of these churches to be addressed here in these chapters. So I want to talk about that word angel. That that word uh, translates the Greek word angelos. And uh, it's, it's usually translated angel, but its fundamental meaning is messenger. Fundamentally, that word means messenger. The root of that word appears in the Gospel Evangelion, which we translate as uh, gospel. That, that's the word gospel, good message, right? Good news. And we get our word evangelism from that, from that Greek word, uh, which doesn't mean good angeling. It means good, good messaging, good, uh, proclaiming the good news, proclaiming the gospel, <clears throat> Right? So there are plenty of examples in the Bible where angelos is used to talk about a human messenger, like it's applied to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who is sent to proclaim the coming of the Lord Jesus. Or messengers that John the Baptist himself sent to Jesus. Or messengers that Jesus sent ahead of himself to to prepare a reception for himself in the villages that he was about to visit. Right, so very basically, an angel, an angelos, is uh, a messenger who's sent to talk about Jesus, who's sent to proclaim the gospel, the good message, good news about Jesus. We usually just equate the word with the spiritual beings who are uh, prominent, especially in the Old Testament, but very important throughout the scriptures. 
that God so often uses as messengers. He sends messages by messengers, by these angels, right? So we equate that word with angels as the ones that God uses as messengers and instruments of his will. And to be honest, that word might be used that way most often in the Bible. But the spiritual beings themselves, the, the angels, they're, they're named that after their function. They get their, their name from the word that really just means messenger. All that to say, all that to say, uh, I think that there's a good reason to think here that Jesus is addressing the human messengers. The human messengers the human deliverers of his good news in these churches. He's basically addressing the church's preacher or the church's pastor. Uh, going back, uh, sort of give you some explanation for that, going back to a few details that we uh, didn't look at from last week's passage, but that are brought up again here in, in our passage, is that Jesus holds these stars. He holds these stars in his right hand, uh, stars which are messengers. And then he picks up John with that same right hand after John had fallen uh, face, face first in the dirt. <clears throat> uh, he picks up John with that same right hand, and he associates John with this, this hand that holds the messengers. And, and he upholds John himself as a messenger to these messengers. And these mini letters, they're, they're written to the messengers of the churches. They address these messengers in ways that uh, they really, it's hard to understand how they would apply to angels. Right? Jesus tells the messenger of the Ephesian church, I know your works. I know you're bearing up under difficulties there. But you've abandoned your first love. So you need to repent. And if you don't, I'll close your church. And this is a really strange way to talk to some angelic spiritual being who's maybe supposed to be like representative of the church somehow, ultimately responsible for it. Is it even possible for an angel to abandon his first love? look at all the scriptures, it um, certainly doesn't seem possible if they do abandon their first love to, to be able to repent, <laughs> to be able to repent. Um, and if an angel could go wrong, and if an angel could repent, would Jesus have, have John write a letter to the church to be read out loud in order to call the angel to repentance? So we read this out loud and hope, I guess, that the angel is listening somehow. Are you listening, angel? This is for you. Um, but it makes perfect sense to understand Jesus to be addressing the human messenger, the, the pastor or the preacher, as, as Christ's own ambassador, right? The one that he has sent with the message, the good news of him and his kingdom to that congregation, as the representative of the congregation, who is in a real sense responsible for the congregation, responsible for the church that is in his charge, it's in his care, right? The magnitude of the office of teacher or elder or pastor in the church, it's seen throughout the New Testament, especially in passages like James 3, where it says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with, with greater strictness. And in Hebrews 13, uh, talking to the congregation there, <clears throat> uh, it says, your leaders are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So special representational responsibility and a stricter judgment. And I think it's more important, uh, you know, just I'm spending a little bit of time here talking about this. It applies to our passage now and over the next seven weeks as we talk about all these letters that are written to the messengers of the churches there. I think it's more important than just sort of moderately 
interesting trivia that Jesus may in fact be addressing Timothy himself, that, uh, that Timothy may still be the pastor in Ephesus that he's talking to. Um, Jesus is saying that the spiritual state of the messenger, the spiritual state of, let's just say the pastor, will have a real impact on the congregation itself. A church is shaped by our leaders, and church leaders really are responsible for the welfare of the church. That's pointed out in Scripture. <clears throat> and this is exactly why Paul, when he writes to young pastors, what we call the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, when he's writing to these pastors, he makes such a huge deal. He spends so much time talking about leadership development. It's a huge part of the pastor's job description and responsibility and calling in the, in the congregation in his care for Christ's flock, it's in his charge. Entrust the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And don't let the wolves and false teachers have influence in the church. Super important in the pastoral epistles. and Really in a lot of the New Testament. <clears throat> it's brought up over and over again. The pastor has to do gospel-centered teaching and leadership development for the the positive formation of the church, and he has to do gospel-centered protection of the office of elder to keep bad influences out of the church. Someone might say, um, you know, just bring this home, uh, <clears throat> that you should be the judge of how well I've done that. Uh, I'm not going to say that because ultimately Jesus reserves that right for himself, and he's exercising that judgment here in this passage. Jesus, in verse 2, he knows the works of his messenger in the Ephesian church. He's intimately familiar with everything that's going on in the pastor's life. Really, obviously, he's, he's familiar with everything going on intimately in all of our lives because he's the, the Lord who walks among the golden lampstands, who's present with his people. He's the great high priest who's tending these lampstands in the eternal temple of God. And in this case, Jesus knows the messenger's works. He knows his toil and his patient endurance. How well he's done in his theological discernment. How well he's done in his keeping evil men out of the leadership or positions of influence. In protecting the church from self-proclaimed apostles who really are false teachers who would lead God's people astray. Jesus warned himself, uh, <clears throat> sorry, Jesus warned us about this himself. Um, in the Gospels, he said, uh, Matthew 24, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And Paul warned the Ephesian elders, this, the, the people in this congregation, the leaders of this church, about this as he left them. It says in Acts 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It's a pretty severe warning. It's kind of scary. <clears throat> it may be that he had had some experience with this when he was there, because it says in 1 Corinthians 15... He says, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. He's probably not talking about gladiatorial sports, right? I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Evil, evil men who would lead the church astray. False teachers. 
And he reminded Timothy about the same danger repeatedly in his letters. It's a huge theme in his letters. So, <clears throat> so there's this heightened awareness about this particular danger in Ephesus. And the pastor is actually commended for doing good work on this point. But it sounds like he has focused on this in a way that has hollowed him out spiritually. Right? It's, it's not hard to imagine a hypercritical, self-righteous, maybe just plain mean pastor always looking for a fight, who's always fixated on pointing out what's wrong with other people, pointing out what's wrong with their beliefs, always looking for what's wrong because he's the guardian of the truth and he's a gatekeeper for sound doctrine. It's not hard to imagine that guy. It's not hard to imagine that guy's reformed Presbyterian church that's attracted to his discernment, his, his disposition as a discerning person who's always pointing out what's wrong with other people. It's not hard to imagine that church being shaped by his attitude. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what's the real problem with the pastor in a place like Ephesus? Does he need to lighten up? Does he need to lighten up a bit? I mean, uh, stop being so careful, going on and on always about the doctrine. Does he need to become lenient and tolerant and affirming? Not at all. Jesus commends all his works. He thoroughly approves. It's very important for his messengers to be clear about his message, to protect that message, to protect the church from dangerous counterfeits that would harm people in the church, that would distort the clarity of the gospel message. It's very important. Again, the whole New Testament is shot through with warnings about how important that is. Now, the problem... It's not with the works, it's with the heart. It's with the heart. <clears throat> I know you're enduring patiently, Jesus says, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So the problem that Jesus finds so significant that he is warning that he himself will come in judgment and shut down this church if the messenger there doesn't repent, is that the, the pastor's lost his first love. The pastor's lost the reason he's doing ministry at all. He's lost his spiritual heart and motivation for shepherding the flock. The Lord uh, warned about this problem way back, warned, warned all of his people way back in uh, Deuteronomy 6, and part of this quote is provided on the front cover of the bulletin for you, where he says, uh, God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, everything in you. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, lest you forget the Lord who's, who's been gracious to you and saved you. It's the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Remove your lampstand. <clears throat> so the love of God, the love of Jesus, that, that first love, must be at the heart of everything you're doing or else. That's what's being said here. Because the most important thing about God's people 
The most important thing about the church, at the heart of everything, the thing that we're really about is relationship with God. It's a relationship of love with God, where we love him because he first loved us, where our love for him manifests in our love for one another. These are themes that John loves to talk about. Go read 1 John. But if self-righteousness infects the core identity of the church, especially through the minister, through the messenger, if self-righteousness infects the core identity of the church, well, it's no longer a gospel-centered church with Jesus Christ at its heart. If, uh, if we're all about being right, and doing the right thing, thinking the right thing, <clears throat> feeling right, and distinguishing ourselves from others because we're right and they're wrong, And nothing has anything to do with our actual relationship with Jesus anymore than how does the love of God abide in us? It's been gutted. This church would have been gutted if that were true. And under those conditions, no one should, should be surprised if Jesus comes in judgment and shuts down a church like this. Uh, I told this story recently to a group of pastors in Portland. I'll give you a brief version of it. There there was a time about 10 years ago when I was in a series of very difficult conversations with some folks and some conflict. There was conflict. And uh, and I was stressed because I stress about conflict and I'm reluctant to engage. But I was trying to muster up the motivation to do it because I was convinced that it was my duty. It was the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do to go ahead and engage in these conversations and in this conflict. And I was talking with a fellow pastor about all this. And he just asked me, why are you doing this? Why are you doing any of this pastor stuff at all? Especially this hard part of the calling. I basically said, I'm supposed to do it. It's the right thing to do. It's my duty. I said that and I believed it. That's the That's the heart out of which I was operating. To which he replied, well, if you're not doing it to get closer to Jesus, you might as well quit. If you're not doing all these good and right and important and difficult things for the sake of your first love, well, what are you even doing? I think implicit is you might as well quit because Jesus is going to come cut everything down. If it's not all about him in the first place, he's going to take away your lampstand if you're not living in your first love. And that uh, encounter shaped me because I realized to some degree I'd forgotten why I'd gotten into ministry in the first place. So many, so many years of conflict and difficulty in the church and sort of strengthening myself by thinking, well, I'm doing the right thing, I'm doing my duty. And I've got to do this, don't I? <clears throat> the love of God, uh, the love of Christ, wasn't at the heart of my service or my ministry, at least not in this case. And that immediately became the most significant matter for my repentance. And as the great uh, reformer, Martin Luther, reminds us, 
When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of a believer to be one of repentance. The entire life. This is not just a, you flip a light switch, you do it once, and you've never got this problem again kind of a thing. Constant recalibration is required on this point. Because it's the easiest thing in the world to slip back into just doing the right things. Because they're the right things to do. Because we, uh, we like how we feel when we're right and do the right things. And we don't like how we feel when we're wrong and do the wrong things. So we want to avoid that. And to forget God and walk away from our love for God and, and our faithfulness to Christ, which should be at the heart of every single thing we do in our life and our ministry. It's so easy to be about the truth for the wrong reasons. And not to be about the truth for the sake of our first love. And the only way to repent on that matter, which is something we have to do repeatedly and constantly, it's not just me, I think, is when you find yourself snapping back automatically into just doing the right thing. What's the right thing to do? How do I do it? It's to come to the Lord Jesus for his mercy and his grace like you did at first. To hear and believe the good news about his love for you. To ask the Holy Spirit to connect you to Jesus. To fix your eyes on Jesus and fill you with the life of Jesus. Just like you did when you first came to Jesus. It's the pretty basic stuff, right? It's the first works. Ask God to keep you in his love by his grace. Ask God to grant that you would love him and love others in his name. And that everything that you do would be done out of love to him and others. You've got to keep coming back to that. And when you do, then your spiritual life is renewed and your ministry is renewed. So now, uh, it still happens. Whenever I go into difficult conversations, I'm just looking for the right thing to do. Or I'm stuck on finding out what's wrong with this person, what's wrong with this situation, so that I can correct it. I feel lost. I feel directionless. I feel unhelpful, certainly. And I'm floundering. <laughs> that whole approach of what's the right thing, do the right thing, that whole approach is a dead end. It's a dead end for me, and I, I feel it. But when I turn to Jesus and remember that he's opened his life to me, that's the good news, that's the gospel. The God-man has come into the world, he's opened his life to me entirely. He invites me to follow him into the hard places in life. He invites me to participate in his life and in his mission and in his ministry, what he's doing. <clears throat> when I look to live in my first love, it changes everything. It, changes it dramatically. Even the most difficult conversations and conflicts with other people, maybe they don't become easier in some sense, but my stress isn't as big a part of that. My fear isn't as big a part of that anymore. They become a matter of being with Jesus where he is, being with your first love. It becomes a matter of sharing his interests and engaging with other people in his name. <clears throat> Look at verse 6. <clears throat> Nobody really knows who the Nicolaitans were or uh, what they taught or what they did. There's really no information on that. I mean, they, they appear 
also uh, later in these letter letters, but really not much information is given. Many think that they were followers of some guy named Nicolaus, but since we don't know anything about him, it doesn't really help us. <clears throat> um, but, but their name, their name means Nike people. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of you that uh, hopefully I didn't just offend. It's not a slam on employees or on the company's products or anything. It, uh, it means victory people. Victory people. And I imagine them being some early form of health and wealth prosperity cult. Where you're just living from victory to victory. Everything's supposed to be great. Because, uh, because that's what the gospel says, right? <clears throat> that might be unnecessarily speculative. I don't know. Whatever the case... Jesus doesn't say in the abstract, it is good that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. It is right that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. He says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And what Jesus wants is for us to abide in him and not abstract our life from him, not abstract our ministry from him, to abide in him, to love what he loves. That's what's important. He loves it. To hate what he hates. That's what's important. He hates it. To live in participation in his own life and to relate to every aspect of ministry, to relate to him at every moment, and to have his heart and his motives as our own by his Holy Spirit in everything that we're doing. If you just hate the wrong people because they're wrong and we're right well you might be right but that's not Christian I don't know what it is it's not Christian if it isn't your love for Christ and the closely related love for his people at the heart of what you're doing then what are you even doing whatever it is Jesus won't put up with it forever and you'll probably burn out. And there really won't be any lasting good that will come of your life and your ministry if you're just all about being right and doing right and hating what's wrong. If you happen to be an elder and your spiritual character in that way it shapes the church, then it'll be good, actually, for Jesus to come and take away the lampstand. That'd be good. But if you repent and return to your first love, then, <clears throat> then even the conflicts and the pressures and the sufferings of life in the church, they become occasions for constant renewal and celebration of your relationship with the Lord. <clears throat> because if you return to your first love, you get Jesus. You return to Jesus, you get Jesus. You're rewarded with your first love himself. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. So you'll live forever, which is in the paradise, the park, the garden of God, in God's presence. And that means you'll have him forever. Let that animate your life and all that you do in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, since we do struggle with sin, we're always going to have this problem of, um, 
wanting to do what's right and good, but being very far in our hearts from doing that uh, for the right reasons because of our love for you. And it really does uh, take a miraculous work of your Holy Spirit to recalibrate our hearts so that we would repent and return to our first love. We pray that you would be with us always, that uh, we would notice as we live our lives, as we go from here and engage with one another in the church, engage with other believers, uh, as we even engage with those who are um, dangerous influences in the church and and, uh, false teachers who threaten the, the health of your church because of the distortion of the gospel message that they might proclaim. We pray that you would be with us always, that we would notice that you are with us, recalibrating our hearts and our minds so that we would be able to repent and return to our first love as the the source and the heart and the foundation of all the things that, that we do, all the things that you call us to do, all the things that you call us to join you in doing in this world. We pray that you would um, make us eager to go into those places because that's where you are and we love you because you first loved us and you gave your life for us. We pray that you would help us never to forget the Lord. We pray for your Spirit's help in Jesus' name. Amen.